turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. We saw last week the conversion of Paul, and today we return to the work of Peter and his itinerant healing ministry. So, Acts chapter 9, starting at verse 29. And he, Saul, spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Now it came to pass, as Peter went through all parts of the country, that he also came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydda. There he found a certain man named Aeneas, who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. And he arose immediately. So all who dwelt at Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. At Joppa there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated gazelle. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died. When they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa... And the disciples had heard that Peter was there. They sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. Then Peter arose and went to them. When he had come, they brought him to the upper room, and the widows stood by him weeping, showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them out and knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. Then he gave her his hand and lifted her up, and when he had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed on the Lord. So it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon, a tanner. Let's pray. Father, help us to believe your word. Help us to see the grandeur and majesty of your Son, and that he offers and provides what no one else offers or can provide. We pray that many would see his works and turn to him, and above all, that you would help us to turn to him this morning. Help me to speak boldly and accurately what's written here in your word to your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What we saw last week, Christ's reign over his enemy as he conquers Saul of Tarsus, who's breathing out threats and slaughter. We see today his reign expressed in two different scenarios, the church at peace and the church at work. The church is at peace in verse 31, one of Luke's summaries, where he describes half a dozen characteristics of a church at peace. And then the church is at work in the rest of this passage, as Peter goes around and he heals Aeneas, and he raises Tabitha from the dead. What do we see? Well, we see that the church thrives by offering what no one else offers, which is Jesus. So, first the summary. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace. So what what is the characteristics of a church at peace? Well, Luke seems to suggest by saying... Saul was there, he went around, he was ministering, he was undergoing death threats, and then they put him on a ship and sent him away to Tarsus, which is a couple hundred miles away. 
Then the church had peace. Now he doesn't say exactly, once they got rid of Paul, they were happier. But he also leaves that impression on you by saying they sent him away to Tarsus, then they had peace. How do we explain this? Well, one of the most compelling explanations I've read posits that there really are two wings of the church. The settled wing and the advancing wing. And in historic Roman Catholicism, these are represented by the local parish on the one hand, the settled congregation, and then the monastic orders on the others that go out on the other hand that go out and conquer new territory. In contemporary evangelicalism, we have the same division of labor between the local church on the one hand, the settled ministry, and the parachurch on the other. And so people who read the text this way say Saul was a monastic fellow. He was a parachurch leader. He was somebody whose ministry was too big to fit inside the walls of an ordinary local congregation. All right, we can think of Billy Graham's first call. Whenever it was mid-late 1940s, he goes out to a little country church somewhere, and within two years, he's left that pulpit. Well, why? Well, the obvious reason is too much ministry to fit inside one little church. One of you called me once and said, I'm going to get an Alaskan Malamute. It's 130 pounds. And I was like, wow. So the next week, a friend calls back and says, I didn't get the Malamute. I said, really? And he said, no, too much dog. <laughs> well, it seems to me, brothers and sisters, that that's Paul. Too much apostle. He's really good. He's amazing. He's a wonderful guy to have for a time. So if we read the rest of Acts, anybody remember off the top of their head, what's the longest Paul ever stayed in one spot? Three years in Corinth, and they needed it. Otherwise, typically, I mean, in a lot of these places, he's there a week, two weeks, maybe six or eight weeks. Luke seems to be telling us Paul is a little too much apostle that there can be, maybe there are, ministry tax, tasks that can't be done solely within the local church. Paul was always devoted to the local church, but it was always a new local church. Right. Even the churches that got a lot of attention. We have two letters to Corinth, two whole letters, and we think that that's a lot. And it is a lot. Two letters from Paul is a lot. But an ordinary person, if I've written to you two letters in my lifetime, you probably don't think, wow, I have received an amazing amount of communication from that Caleb. <coughs> right? I'm no Paul, and we all know it. There are ministry tasks that are huge ministry tasks that are assigned to people with a bigger sphere, like the Apostle Paul. So troublemakers, people who are a little too much for the local church to handle, sometimes need to move on. Sometimes God calls one of us, or many of us, to a larger sphere of ministry. 
He might be calling some of you to the foreign mission field. Go to Iran. Go to Fiji. Go to Timbuktu. And you know, you might get the backing of your local church for that, as Paul did, precisely because they're saying, Fiji needs you more than we do. So Paul leaves, and then the church has peace. And that peace is expressed, well, what is peace in the church? Peace is the union of the appetites inclinations. Peace is when I want the same thing you want, when we all want the same thing, and we are agreed on how to get there. That's peace. When we are working together toward the same goal. War, on the other hand, is when we want different things or when we want the same thing and don't agree on how to accomplish it. I want a vibrant worship experience. The elders want a vibrant worship experience. I think a vibrant worship experience involves a piano and three hymns. They think a vibrant worship experience involves a concert that sounds a little bit like a cross between Skillet and Green Day. We don't have peace. Peace is the union of the appetites and inclinations, first within the individual person and then within the body. The church in Jerusalem, in Galilee, in Samaria, had peace because they agreed on what they wanted and they agreed on how to get there. And then, as we'll see, that was when they were edified. That's when the church was built up. What is edification? Well, it means being turned into an edifice. It means being, well, built. People don't ask when a church is being edified, who's edifying us? Is this God? Is this the guy in the pew next to me? Is this the preacher? Is this the elders? Who's building this church? You just experience it and you say, something is happening here and I like it. We're growing. Our church is growing. We are more mature than they were. I had a conversation with so-and-so five years ago and he complained the whole time. I had a conversation with him last week and he praised God the whole time. That's edification. And I don't sit back and say, wait, where is this coming from? It's a synergistic process and that's why Luke puts it in the passive. They were edified. The church built itself. Jesus built the church. Jesus built the church through the activity of every member of the body, as Paul breaks it down in Ephesians 4. That's how the church is edified. A healthy church is an edified church where people are growing in their knowledge of Christ, their obedience to Christ, their love for Christ. And when you get to be part of a church like that, where you can be around others who are growing, who are being edified, you grow too. By the same token, if you're in a shriveling, dying church where people are growing more and more hateful all the time, guess what happens to you? The churches were edified. They were getting better at loving Jesus and they were getting better at sharing that love with others. And that's a goal for our church. We want peace. We want troublemakers at a safe distance. We want to be built up, not stuck. Wow, we're all just about the same as we ever were. 
there's something to that. But we should be becoming more like Jesus. How did the church do this? Well, they walked in the fear of the Lord. Like Nehemiah, who fed 150 people at his table, three meals a day out of his own pocket. Why did he do that? He did that because he feared God. To fear God is to make your decisions based on just one question. What does God think of this? So we don't ask, in other words, what does the pastor think of this? What does the New York Times think of this? Will this make it more likely that I survive, that I gain a bigger platform, that I get more influence, that people like me more? We don't ask those questions to decide our course of action. We ask, what does God think of this? That's what the church did. Does this please God? That was their yardstick. But the fear of God does not mean discomfort. Oh, I know I'm fearing God now because my life is miserable. No, walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. What is the comfort of the Holy Spirit? Well, you probably heard the word paraclete. The Spirit is the paraclete, Jesus said. That's somebody who comes alongside and speaks for you, not necessarily a professional advocate, though it could be. Just a friend who's willing to speak on your behalf, that is the Holy Spirit, the paraclete. And that's his ministry, paraclesis, or comforting. It's usually translated in our English versions. Jesus speaks on your behalf, and that makes you feel better. So what does that mean? Well, that we aren't looking somewhere else for comfort. If the news cycle makes our emotional weather, we're pagans. I'm upset because whatever. The Raiders won. The Senator voted the wrong way. The, you name it. Then you're not walking in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. You're trying to find comfort from the passing events of the day. That's not what the church in Galilee was looking toward. They were looking toward the comfort of the Holy Spirit. The comfort of the Holy Spirit means that we are encouraged by what never changes, which is the reality and power of God, His salvation, His love for us in Jesus. The comfort of the Holy Spirit means the Spirit speaks on my behalf, and I know that, and I believe that, and I trust Him to do that. So how do we get there? How do we walk in the comfort of the Holy Spirit? Well, we don't grieve Him. We have to be full of the Word, and we have to pray for Him. And that's what the church did. Walking in the fear of the Lord, the comfort of the Holy Spirit, having peace, having troublemakers at a safe distance, they were multiplied. Who's going to come join a church that is riven with conflict, that has too many big personalities who don't fit, that doesn't fear God, that isn't comforted by the Holy Spirit, who would want to be in such a church? Not me. Not any of you. But when the church has these characteristics, when it has peace, when it has edification, when it has the fear of God and the comfort of the Spirit, that's when the church multiplies. Now Luke is not telling us that every church that gets it right is going to balloon up. 
He's saying rather that any local church that does these things is going to be an asset to the global church. And sooner or later, the prayers and the activities of that congregation will bless and multiply the global church. Maybe not here, maybe not now. But we will multiply the church as we walk in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. So in other words, you can't walk into a church, look around, count the number of noses and say, looks like they don't fear God or walk in the Spirit here. They aren't multiplied. Rather, you have to understand that the multiplication may come immediately in terms of the growth of that local congregation, or it might come in a different way, which seems to be what what Luke is telling us. Because they were multiplied. Where were they multiplied, Luke? Well, not in Judea, Samaria, and Galilee, but rather in the next district. Peter goes down to Lydda, and then he goes to Joppa, which are on the Mediterranean coast, kind of opposite Galilee. The church is multiplied, but not in the place where it's doing well, somewhere else. Peter goes and he does this ministry. The first thing he does, he comes down to Lydda. In the Old Testament, this city was named Lod. Today it's called Lod again, but for some reason in the New Testament era, they called it Lydda for a while. Now it's Lod. Anyway, Peter goes there. And there's this guy named Aeneas who's bedridden and paralyzed eight years, and Peter just announces to him, you're healed. The good news is moving out from Jerusalem, Peter comes to Lod and sees this man, and Jesus heals him right there. Make your bed, Peter tells him. Not as a condition for getting healed. If you can get up and make that bed, then I'll heal you. No, God heals him, Jesus heals him, And then as a sign of his gratitude, he makes the bed. It's an obvious, obvious parallel, parable for the Christian life. When you've been saved, you do what you can in service to God. If you've been saved, make your bed. Or whatever it is that your hand finds to do, what God puts in front of you, you do that to show your gratitude for having been saved. So Jesus Christ heals. What a great... Mantra. Jesus heals you, Peter says. He heals not just physical illness, but moral illness, from which no one naturally recovers. So then, all who dwelt at Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. The church multiplied right away after Peter heals this man. Now, why did so many people get saved? In one sense, because this was new ground, the gospel hadn't been here before, when it comes, when they see the power of Jesus, a bunch of them turn. But I would go further and say that the point is not the physical healing. Because if the point is the physical healing, then we're putting Jesus on the same level with what we call the healthcare industry. That is, Luke is not trying to tell us that Jesus is just like the medical establishment, only a little better. That's not the idea. That Jesus is quantitatively superior 
to anything the world offers. No, the point is that Jesus is qualitatively superior. Jesus is different in kind. He's offering something no one else offers when he offers healing. And that's why a focus in the church on physical healing is misplaced today. Yes, Jesus heals physically. Absolutely. But the main thing he's offering, and it's crucial that we make this clear, is not physical healing. We are not touting Jesus as a replacement for the Mayo Clinic, for New York Presbyterian Hospital, for the MD Anderson Cancer Center. We're not saying if you have Jesus, then we can scrap our medical establishment. That is not the point. The point is that Jesus offers something that the medical establishment doesn't. Right, As long as we are preaching the gospel that Jesus and the Christian faith is like the welfare state, only better, of course we will lose people to the welfare state or to the medical or to anything that offers the same thing we're offering and offers it better. I mean, could Jesus be better than the Mayo Clinic? Of course. But that isn't his goal. He's not here primarily for physical healing. And so if we set up our proclamation of the gospel in such a way that Jesus is a competitor to the existing medical system, we've missed the point. If we talk about God's provision in such a way that Jesus becomes something on a level with government subsidies, we've missed the point. And that's, of course, where Luke takes it immediately as he goes into something that no government agency offers, no hospital offers. We have a cancer clinic, right? MD Anderson or numbers of others. We have clinics for every kind of horrible disease or whole wards in our local hospital. But we don't have any resurrection center. There's no place on this earth that offers new life, and that's where... Peter goes next. He goes up to Joppa, and there, well, he's summoned to Joppa because this woman, Tabitha, who did many charitable deeds, lots of good works, has died. So Tabitha had done a lot of good stuff. If you died, would people be standing around sobbing, showing all the wonderful things you did for them in their lifetime? No, that's not our call. It's not the calling of every one of us to make clothing or to give away tangible things like that. But this was Tabitha's calling. That's how she ministered, and when she died, she left a giant hole in her community, and that is what every Christian does in ways big or small, visible or invisible to the world's eyes. You can die and leave behind a giant pile of tunics and shirts that you made for the indigent which in those days, remember, was a mighty gift. A piece of clothing was a skilled product. A piece of clothing then was the equivalent of buying something handmade today. But anyway, Tabitha gave away these things generously. And that should be our goal as believers. In my lifetime, I will serve God such that when I die... 
people will remember how I served God. That I was someone who, whatever your calling is, brought love, made shirts, fed people, had a gift with little children, had a gift with old people, was really good at tracking down evil perpetrators and putting them behind bars. Whatever it is, whatever gift God has given to you, use that gift as Tabitha did. And yet, Luke doesn't shy away from it. The most charitable, devout, wonderful, godly, loving person you could ever hope to meet gets taken by death. This woman died. Luke doesn't say, and in the church everything is wonderful and the good people live on and on and the bad people die or go away or get shipped off to Tarsus Tarsus, and life is good. No. In the church, the ones we love the most, the ones who do the most, the servants that everybody loves, they perish. Right? The Mormon church is run by a man who was born in 1924. The wicked live on and on. The people who are leading others astray in mass, they seem to flourish. God takes our loved ones home. And he says, I conquered death. I bring life out, life out of death. I'm not a glorified hospice. I don't do what hospice does, only better. I do the opposite of what hospice does. Jesus undoes death itself. You know, there are only five resurrections in the New Testament. Jesus, He raised Lazarus, He raised the widow of Nain's son, and He raised the little girl. So Jesus raised three, Peter and Paul raised one each in the book of Acts. Only five resurrections aside from that of Jesus. Of course, if you're into numerology, you could say you add Christ, that's six resurrections. We're not there yet. We haven't reached seven. The number of perfection we're not at. The consummation, the last day when everyone will rise. But anyway, five resurrections, this is one of them. Peter goes into her bedroom, drives everyone out. This isn't spectacle to please the crowds. That's not what it's about. And I will now raise a woman to life on stage. No. None of that garbage. Get out of here. Tabitha, arise. And of course, you can't miss it. In Aramaic, this is exactly what Jesus said to the little girl, except he said, Talitha kum. And Peter says, Tabitha kum. Almost exactly the same words. Imitating his master, Peter brings the dead to life. He offers what no one else can to show that the kingdom of God is breaking into the world. That Jesus is not one traveling healer among many. Jesus is not going to open the Mayo Clinic 2.0. That's not the business he's in. Jesus is not going to run for president and show the world how within our ordinary system of politics it can be done right. Not the business he's in. Which is why you can put the word Christian in your party name, incidentally. 
that doesn't make it the perfect party. The Christian party just lost the elections in Germany because it had been in government for 17 years. People wanted something else. When you're with Jesus for 17 years, you don't want something else because he offers what the world cannot give. So there's mass conversions. It became known throughout all Joppa and many believed on the Lord. What did they believe? Death is not the end. Death does not have the last word. Jesus can raise to life. Jesus offers something that the world does not offer. Jesus holds our dead loved ones in his hands and he can and will restore them to us. That is the message that Peter preached in Joppa. Simply by walking out and saying, here she is, folks. It's Tabitha. Back again. So Jesus not only heals, He raises from the dead, He offers what the world cannot offer, and He offers it to people that the world would not offer it to, and that's what verse 43 is about. Simon a tanner, the rabbis of course, that announced that tanning was an unclean vocation, as you work all day with dead animals, stinky hides. We think of the beach as a luxury location. Simon a tanner, it tells us in the next chapter that his house was by the sea. Oh man, Mediterranean beach. But that's not why Peter was staying with him. He was staying with him to say, the word of God is for stinky people who work with dead animals. The word of God is for low class people who are considered unclean. And, as the next chapter is going to tell us, the Word of God is for Gentiles. The Word of God is going to move beyond Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and it's going to break out to the uttermost parts of the earth, and that's what we'll see next time. The message that Jesus gives us, essentially the same thing politicians promise, is a message that will destroy the church. That should be our takeaway from our study of the church at peace and the church at work. As long as we're saying, follow Jesus and you will live like a Swede or a Dane or a Norwegian, you've missed the point. The point is that if you follow Jesus, you will live a qualitatively different life than anything the world has to offer. And that message is not just for Jews, it is for Gentiles too, as chapter 10 is all about. The message that Jesus offers, what nobody else offers, was the secret of church growth in the first century, and it's the secret of church growth now. Jesus offers what nobody else offers. That's why we should not position the church as a competitor with Starbucks. We're not here primarily to serve great coffee. We're not a competitor to the movie theater. We're not here primarily to serve up entertainment, action, and excitement. We're not a competitor to the Elks Club, the Lions Club, other charitable service organizations. We're not here primarily to do good deeds. 
There's nothing wrong with serving great coffee, showing great films, doing service and charitable deeds. Or with healing people. But when the church is about those things, and frankly, Starbucks is going to do it better. The Mayo Clinic and Campbell County Health are going to do it better. Hollywood is going to do it better. But Jesus is not a competitor to those things. He offers a whole different way of life. And that's what Peter said as he went to Lydda and as he went to Joppa, as he raised Aeneas, or healed Aeneas, raised Tabitha, and now in the next chapter gets ready to go to Cornelius. Jesus saves. Not Jesus entertains. Not Jesus brews good coffee. Jesus saves. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us not only to know Christ as the one who can raise the dead because he himself rose from the dead, but to believe that. Comfort our hearts, Lord. As we look in this, around this world and we see the brutal, broken reality that the best and the best beloved die while the wicked live on. Father, we thank you that your son is setting even that right that He will heal this entire world, that He's offering something different, better than anything the politicians or the corporations can ever even attempt to give us. Lord, we ask that You would help us to believe Your Son, to sing His praise, to work for Him and live for Him and walk with Him. Thank You that You healed Aeneas. Thank You for the church at peace. We pray that ours would be a church at peace that multiplies. In Jesus' name. Amen.